The UN Secretary General said we should stop treating nature like a toilet. But my view is that if it's a safely managed toilet, we can actually be contributing to climate mitigation if we do it right. Well, COP26 is well underway, and what else will we be talking about today but WASH and climate change? Exactly. You are listening to WASH Works, a podcast from DevEx about how a lack of water and sanitation impacts the everyday lives of billions of people around the world and what can be done about it. I'm Amrita Bhyatnal. I'm an associate editor here at DevEx. I'm based in New Delhi, and I usually look at our global health coverage. On this podcast, I'm going to be doing what I do best, ask questions to Rebecca. And I'm Rebecca Roots, reporter and senior associate with DevEx based in Bangkok, and I've been covering WASH for around three years now. And today we're going to be joined by three guests who have a particular expertise on WASH and can tell us a little bit more about where it sits in the issue of climate change. And Rebecca, this is the first time that there's a water pavilion at COP, right? Why do you think that is and what are we expecting from it? So alongside the the COP26 agenda and all the different events that there are, the WASH Pavilion has its own schedule of events that are really focusing and honing in on WASH and climate change as solutions, the challenges, uh, the different innovations that are out there, and it's a full two weeks of programming. So the people that I've been speaking to these last few weeks have said that the space for water within the COP kind of realm has really grown exponentially when you compare it to, to previous years. And then what exactly are the WASH people saying? So, you know, like how exactly are the two issues connected and how are they going to make their case? Yeah, so basically 90% of extreme weather events affect water. So maybe there's there's floods or droughts or storms and they might destroy water sources, contaminate them or just generally make clean water really hard to find. And that's why there's this push from the wash sector to make sure that any projects are taking that into consideration and thinking of climate resilience. But yeah, flooding is something that I've been seeing firsthand actually the past few days because we're right in the height of the rainy season here in Bangkok. And there's a big river that runs right through the city. And of course, as the rains come, um, the levels of the water in the river rise and that's causing some flooding in and around that area. I actually went down to the riverbank uh, the other morning just to see what that looks like. So this morning I've tried to get as close as I can to the Chayo Friar River. That's the main river that runs through the city of Bangkok and that's because yesterday it flooded. Um, So right now it's the rainy season in Bangkok which means that most of the day it's beautiful sunny weather but each day there's usually a massive massive downpour. It doesn't last too long but it's really really heavy rains and that means that this main river is flooding once maybe twice a day. And so right now as I say I've tried to get as close as I can to the river but it's quite difficult because it has flooded and in the areas you know around the river there's just um really really deep levels of water i'm looking out to a car park now and i'd say it's coming up halfway um on the tie on the car's tires and i'm also sat on the steps of a building and the water's already reached one two of those steps and there is a member of staff here trying to sweep it up but I'm not sure what good that will do because obviously uh, we're still in the height of the rainy season so it's expected that there'll be, there'll be another downpour later today. 
Um, I did hear that the government, the, the governor of Bangkok has come out and apologized for just not being um, prepared or properly predicting the levels of water that the city would see um, and not taking adequate mitigation measures. I think there was an expected area of flooding, but this latest flood yesterday has far exceeded that. Um, don't know if you can hear that now, but that is a motorbike trying to make its way through this massive, massive pool of water. Much braver than I am. I don't know if I'd be able to brave that. He's driving very, very slowly. Um, but yeah, last year on record uh, was the worst for flooding in the whole Asia Pacific region. Um, Bangkok's only 1.5 meters above sea level, so quite a low-lying low city. So it's really affected by global warming. Wow, that must have been quite a sight. But this is exactly what we mean when we say climate change really affects WASH as well. And here, it shows how extreme weather events are impacting water sources, right? Yeah, that's definitely a big part of the picture. So protecting water sources and rolling out projects that are about resilience and adapting to the new realities that a warming world presents. But then I guess there's also this this other pool of thought, sorry for the pun there, um, where WASH can really be a part of climate change solutions as well. So maybe it's projects that are improving access to WASH, but also taking a more climate-focused approach, or they're just solutions that involve using WASH as a way to improve our environment. It's interesting that you actually got to see that, Rebecca. And you know, like these kind of extreme events are only going to rise going forward. And we know that the WASH community has always asked for, uh, you know, some sort of a platform and they've asked to be involved in the part of the solutions too. Yeah, sure. And that's something that we'll hear a little bit more about shortly with our first interviewee, uh, Katerina de Albuquerque, who's the CEO of Sanitation and Water for All. But yeah, you're right. They want to be part of the solution. And there's been many examples where WASH has already been seen as part of a solution to the to the climate change issue. issue. So for example, I know nobody likes to talk about it, but feces being used as fertilizer in soil and reusing water or conserving water or using cool technology such as um, water treatment sensors or robots that can clean contaminants in water before it's released back into the environment and then damages ecosystems. And then there's some um, initiatives that we've focused on on Covered Before where um, projects catch fog from the air and then use that moisture, you know, turn it into water, treat it, manage it so that it then can be consumed. So there are some really cool innovations out there. The possibilities are endless. And as they say, it's better to use the waste before it hits the fan. So let's listen in to what Katerina has to say. And just to warn you, this next section contains some expressive terms for waste. The basic thing is that we cannot adapt to or fight climate change without ensuring resilient access to the human rights to water and sanitation for personal and domestic users. We know that 90% of climate change is happening through water-related events, which have a profound impact on the water cycle. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot has been the importance that each country assesses how much fresh water do I have right now, how much am I likely to have in the next 10, 20, 30 years, and then calculate how much of this water 
is needed to make sure that people uh, have access to water and sanitation, the, uh, the water and sanitation needed for their day-to-day -day lives. And ring fence that water. Make sure you prioritize the allocation of water for people before you start allocating it for big industry, big agriculture, and even tourism, and etc. And also, you might know that the human right to a safe environment was recently recognized by the UN. So the uh, amount of water also necessary for human rights in general. And I think this is something that is not yet being done. On a positive note, water and sanitation also offer um, resilience opportunities for addressing climate. So wash is not just another problem caused by climate change. It can be part of the solution. For example, if we take human feces, and nobody likes to talk about shit, right? If managed properly, it can improve the soil, create renewable natural gas, contributing to SDGs 2 and SDG 7, for example. Better sanitation systems will also contribute to SDG 3 on health. And putting our feces to productive uses would prevent feces from polluting our water, our environment, and also contribute to SDGs 14 and 15, protecting life underwater and on land. So as you can see, if we just take shit, which is the poor parent and the ugly duckling uh, of this pair, water and sanitation, the opportunities are endless. The UN Secretary General said we should stop treating nature like a toilet. But my view is that if it's a safely managed toilet, we can actually be contributing to climate mitigation if we do it right. And as David Attenborough also said, if working apart, we are a force powerful enough to destabilize our part, uh, our planet, surely working together, we are powerful enough to save it. And water, sanitation and hygiene do hold the key for solutions. I think that a fundamental thing that the wash sector has started to do and needs to do more and more and more and more is to reach out, to reach out to other sectors, infiltrate other sectors, because we are currently facing a triple crisis, right? The health crisis, the economic crisis and the climate crisis. And we think that WASH is an enabler or is an indispensable piece in this complicated jigsaw uh, in order to allow, promote, facilitate the us as, as, as a, uh, a planet to overcome, to deal with this crisis. So I think there need to be deliberate efforts from people working in the area of water, sanitation and hygiene to reach out to other sectors and to preach to the unconverted. Uh, I think that's fundamental, fundamental. So Katerina mentions the water pavilion as well, and that does seem like a big step. Are there any other announcements or progress that has been made so far that we should know about? Yeah, so the last few weeks have been full of different announcements, obviously. 
um, from various countries and specifically related to climate change. But there have been a few that have been, you know, looking at WASH as well. So there's the Resilient Water Accelerator. There's been the Glasgow Declaration for Fair Water Footprints and the International High Level Panel on Water Investment for Africa that just launched as well. So these are all initiatives that are looking to improve action that tackles both of these issues or provides funding or um, includes commitments from, from the private sector and from the public sector as well as to how they will um, bear water in mind in the future and try and look at look at climate change through that lens as well. Right. And, you know, in the middle of all of these announcements, there's also a sense of how are countries who have had to face this issue before everyone else, how are they dealing with it? Um, so how, you know, how do we make sense of it? Who did you speak to to kind of understand that better? Yep, so we were joined by Salamil Huck, Director of the International Centre for Climate Change and Development in Bangladesh. So when we speak about uh, community-based adaptation or locally-led adaptation, this is now taking place in many different countries around the world. I'll cite examples from my country, Bangladesh. Bangladesh itself as a country is extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We've known that for well over a decade and we've been taking actions to uh, deal with it and adapt to it. And in particular, the low-lying coastal zone of Bangladesh is extremely vulnerable both to cyclonic storms, but also to creeping sea level rise and salinity intrusion into both the surface water and the uh, groundwater. And the kinds of locally led adaptation that we are seeing there are twofold. Firstly, for drinking water, which as I said, has become saline, not all through the year, but for a period of the year when we don't have any rainfall. So what people have been doing uh, in the millions, and this is going to scale now, is they have rooftop rainwater harvesting systems, a rooftop water tank that captures the rainwater during the monsoon period when we have lots of rain. And then during the dry season, which is a few months only, they can use that for drinking water, not for other purposes. They use normal water for other purposes, but normal water is saline. So if you and I were to go there during the dry season and drink the water there, it would taste saline. And the normal human body can actually uh, cope with some level of salinity, but some people can't, particularly pregnant women are particularly vulnerable. They uh, get high blood pressure and then preeclampsia at childbirth. So one of the uh, at scale measures that is being taken in low lying coastal Bangladesh is rainwater harvesting. Another locally led, but also centrally planned uh, adaptation has been in promoting and growing saline tolerant varieties of rice. The Rice Research Institute in Bangladesh has over time produced well over a dozen varieties of rice that can grow uh, with higher levels of salinity in the soil and the water. And millions of farmers in millions of hectares are growing these saline tolerant varieties of rice, even though they are more expensive. One uh, problem with that is that the scientists, no matter how good they are, are always playing catch up. The salinity levels are are moving up faster than their ability to grow uh, or uh, produce uh, rice varieties that can grow in saline conditions. So there's a limit to adaptation that can be done. And at some point, even the most saline tolerant variety cannot be grown anymore when they have to then shift to growing something like shrimp or crabs 
that can grow in saline water instead of growing rice. So adaptation to climate change is a evolving uh, issue. You have to keep changing with the time. It's not a one-off uh, solution. I had no idea about that link between salinity and, and the impacts on a, on a pregnant woman. So some, learn something new every day. So thank you for that. Um, just to pick up on what you said there about, you know, it's an evolving thing and you always have to be coming up with new solutions. Um, I just want to touch upon the funding behind such projects because um, I don't know if you remember, but you and I spoke last year when WaterAid had put out a report that said um, the top 20 climate climate funding recipients for water programs between two th- to the year 2000 and 2018, of those 19 were middle-income countries. Um, is there an issue with getting funding for climate adaptation pro- projects that do take a look through this WASH lens? Funding for climate change is highly problematic in many different dimensions. So I'll go through uh, uh, several of them uh, a step at a time. Firstly, the developed countries promised way back 12 years ago, in fact, in Copenhagen, that they would give $100 billion a year to the developing countries to tackle climate change, both by uh, mitigation or reducing emissions, as well as to adapt. Uh, That was then formalized as a formal pledge by the same developed countries in Paris, in the Paris Agreement, uh, back in 2015. And they gave a date for when they would start giving that money on an annual basis. And that date was five years later from 2020 onwards. Now, what happened? 2020 has come and gone. Firstly, we don't know what happened because the developed countries have not been able to tell us how much they actually paid in 2020. Uh, The best estimate is 79 billion is is what they came up with. But that's also a highly questionable number because there's been a lot of double counting inside that. And they admit they didn't reach 100. Then secondly, of the money that they did give, only 20% of that went to adaptation. 80% went for mitigation or reducing greenhouse gases. And I'll explain why that's the case. Uh, Mitigation uh, projects generally are about uh, renewable energy, solar or wind. And with renewable energy projects, which are good projects, are nothing against them, they actually generate an income by selling energy and therefore are in a position to pay back loans. So the money for mitigation is given as loans, which the recipient has to pay back. When it comes to providing funding for adaptation to the most vulnerable poor people to deal with floods or cyclones, or droughts or heat waves, they're not generating money to pay back a loan. Poor people can't take a loan. And in fact, it's immoral. Why should they have to take a loan uh, to deal with the impacts of climate change that they didn't create? Um, So they need grants. And that has to come from the public purse, not from private sources. And therefore, that's one reason, my reason, for why the developed countries favor giving money for mitigation because they can give it as loans and don't give money for adaptation because it has to be given as grants. Um, Then there's another layer which comes to your question. How much of that money actually reaches the most vulnerable people, Uh, whether it's for wash or for agriculture or for whatever reasons they need it for adapting to the conditions they're in? My colleagues in the International Institute for Environment and Development in the UK uh, actually went through with a fine tooth comb 
the claims that the developed countries have given for how much they pay and where it goes, and they could only identify 10% of the adaptation funds only that actually reach the local level. So 10% of 20% is 2% of the global amount is reaching the most vulnerable. And so there are many hurdles uh, and barriers on the way of that money gets allocated, spent, delivered from the global to the local. If you want to know how much WASH got, it would be an extremely minuscule amount and it even you wouldn't even be able to calculate it. And so what do you think needs to happen to change that number so that it does increase even just by a percentage or two? Well, that's what we are trying to do. There's a big movement on what we call locally led adaptation. We've come up with eight principles that the donor agencies all have to adopt. The first premise is they have to accept they did it wrong. They, they have not delivered. Many of them are doing that. That's the good news. They are willing to uh, improve. The, then the challenge is how do we actually make it happen? That's not it, that easy to do. And so we are in that process right now of working together to improve the delivery of whatever amount is coming. On the one hand, asking for more, but on the other hand, making sure that whatever comes, every cent gets used effectively, because as I said right now, only 0.2% of every cent can be said to be used effectively, and that's not good enough. Do you think that there's just a general lack of understanding or acknowledgement about the impacts of climate change, the need for adaptation, and then where WASH sits within that? Very much so. It's a lack of understanding, a lack of working with the vulnerable communities. So there's a very hardwired paradigm in the development assistance world that experts always know best. And experts don't need to ask local people. They tell local people what to do and they know what's best for them. Uh, poor people are not targets or just mere beneficiaries. They are agents of change. They know their problem. They know what needs to be done to solve their problem. They need assistance to help them solve their problem in a way that makes sense to them. And that requires a mind shift of accepting that we have to work with them. We have to involve them. We have to get them uh, to tell us what they want. And then together with them, find out what's the best way to um, address the issues. It takes time. It's not easy to do, uh, but it's it ensures effectiveness of the outcomes that the traditional paradigm has not shown any effectiveness or very little effectiveness. That does paint a very bleak picture if only 2% of the 20% that is allocated to adaptation is going to communities. I'm wondering how the people who are actually in these communities feeling about you know, the kind of responsibility they have with very little resources. Yeah, I know that's something that Katerina mentioned as well. And, and every year, I believe, um, Sanitation and Water for All hold meetings with finance ministers to really stress the importance of, of why they should be investing in WASH and just trying to get leaders more on board with tackling this as an issue. And hopefully COP has been a, another step in that in that direction. Right, and we're also talking about the global level um, and, and we need to think about sort of the local level as well in terms of, you know, what are the efforts that are needed at the community level, at the village level um, to really sort of make this change happen. 
Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure that our next guest can help with that. Aishwarya Pramad is um, an accelerator and investment manager at the Toilet Board Coalition. And that's a membership organization that helps scale local ideas that focus on improving sanitation while also tackling, say, climate change or biodiversity. Um, And so they facilitate partnerships and they run a business accelerator to really help those local solutions go to scale. So in our accelerator program, we've worked with over 40 entrepreneurs over the last five years. And over half of these companies have been engaged in waste treatment. This makes a big difference because had it not been for companies like this, waste might have just been released into the environment or often dumped into rivers and lakes. Uh, So this is one way in which TBC is helping. And um, the other thing is most of these waste treatment entrepreneurs are providing decentralized or non-sewered solutions. So the waste is contained and treated at the same site, uh, the same site of sanitation without any need for transport or investment or maintenance of expensive sewage infrastructure. So it's much less energy intensive. So we are promoting these kinds of solutions that actually are more climate friendly. And from your experience working through the accelerator and working through all these different um, social entrepreneurs, are there any lessons learned or best practices that, that you've picked up that might be useful for others as they think about kind of simultaneously tackling access to wash services, but also with that climate change element in mind? The best practices that I have come across, one, I would say that uh, at TBC, we promote a lot of solutions that use less water reduce the water used in toilets and treatment or recycle water on site. Another thing that TBC is uh, promoting is that we are trying to make a wider variety of finance uh, financing sources available to entrepreneurs. So at TBC over the last five years, we've seen entrepreneurs moving more from relying exclusively on grants, donors and governments uh, to actually diversifying their funding sources. So now they're tapping into two new sources. One is the public So when I say public, I'm talking about actual users of the toilet facilities, you know, or sanitation products and services. We found that people are willing to pay for good quality sanitation. And this is good uh, because it gives a source of revenue. And the second uh, trend which I wanted to point out is the growing private investment in WASH. So initially, WASH was looked at as a very risky sector, a government-dependent sector, where private investors were not interested. But now... Uh, they're kind of seeing the positives in WASH because if you look at sanitation, uh, it's a recession-proof industry. So it's something that is so essential that uh, it's it's very, it's shock-proof almost. So we're seeing investors notice that and get interested. The TBC has facilitated um, $10 million of investment in WASH through uh, over the last five years. And, you know, we are set to do more this year. The third one is what we call the smart sanitation economy. Smart sanitation includes data, analytics, sensors, IoT, satellite imagery, and other technologies that help us collect data for decision making. So on one hand, we know that climate change is going to increase the risk risk of diseases. But we also know that wastewater is a very rich source of data about diseases. So we can actually uh, use wastewater to almost preempt diseases and Know, organize our response to diseases. Great. And what would you say to people who are like, wash, climate change, these feel like two separate issues. And in a nutshell, how would you kind of argue against that? Well, I was one of them. So I do, I do understand where they're coming from. But uh, the first thing I would tell them is that uh, climate change is going to affect everything. It is the issue. 
so we have to be aware of it um you know and wash the w in wash stands for water and climate change directly affects water we can't achieve our climate goals if we don't achieve our wash goals because 80% of the waste water uh, across the world right now is being uh, released untreated uh, into water bodies and 20% of human caused global methane emissions are coming from the waste sector so we need to address these in order to have water resilience going ahead You know, I'm going to put on my cynical journalist hat now, um, and I feel like in the development sector, business accelerators are always such a big deal. But we rarely hear about what actually happened to these ideas once they're past the accelerator stage. Yeah, I, I know what you mean, and you know we're we're always hearing of great local ideas that are just so so local. You know, and you wonder will they ever manage to reach that that wider scale? But hopefully, that's something that maybe COP has helped with this year. Hopefully, it's provided an opportunity to showcase more of these examples, and maybe as the financing increases for the sector, so too will some of these solutions. That is the hope, and here at Devex, we're going to keep covering the next few days of COP, and we we'll look at how. wash and climate change policies uh you know are announced if there's anything in uh that links to health and climate change and how wash plays a role in it so that's it from us today If you were at the pavilion or at COP and just have some thoughts that you'd like to share with us then please do. You can do so on social media tagging at @devex or by using the hashtag #washworks and you're always welcome to visit our site which which is washworks.devex.com. Uh, but that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening and do join us next time where we'll be discussing wash and peace.